Uh, so last week we began uh, to explore uh, John's first epistle. We're beginning a new series uh, called That You May Know. And John is writing to uh, the churches that are in Asia Minor, uh, and he's, he's, he's addressing a, a division that was taking place within the church. Uh, there was some heretical teaching that was beginning to spread like a cancer. And, and what, what that was doing was as people were embracing that, uh, that error, that, that false teaching, it started to reveal that some of those in their midst that had a profession of faith did not have a possession of faith. They had embraced Christ with their words but they had not fully embraced Christ with their hearts. And he makes reference to this group in uh, chapter two and verse 19, where he says, speaking of that group, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they, had been, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But he says, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. I identified some of the, the specific issues last week that, uh, that, they were, that was circulating around uh, the church there. And, and I pointed out basically that it's really a lot of the same lies then that many in our culture today uh, continue to spread around. It's just kind of the same old lies repackaged. And ultimately what it was, was, was calling into question the deity of Christ as well as the humanity of Christ. And so directly, John will address these issues that pertain to Christ's humanity as well as his deity. And these are extremely important because not only is it important that they understand who Christ was, but the reality of it is if Christ was not fully man, well, then the atonement would be deemed ineffective. If he was not fully God, then we would be still in our sins. And so really, the, what, was at, at, um, what was in the scope of these uh, heretical teachers was the very essence of the gospel. Man's need for a savior fulfilled by the person of Christ, the second Adam, as Romans declares him to be. Now, I say that that same lie is kind of prevalent in our, in our, our own culture today because people don't want to see Jesus as very God of very God. Right? They, ha they have a hard time recognizing they see him as a good teacher. They see him as a good rabbi, perhaps even a miracle worker. But is he God? And for those who saw him as God, some would bring into question whether he truly was a man. And so that was the issue that John is addressing in this first epistle. If Jesus was not fully man, because again, he was our second Adam, and fully God, being sinless and perfect, then he could not have possibly atoned for the sins of mankind, which is the very heart of the gospel. And so John will address this heresy uh, very clearly. Um, having established that, John will, will encourage the believers by providing ways for them to assess whether they truly are in the faith so that they might know that they are in Christ and that they are that they will have eternal life. John will address the question that oftentimes gets considered in our world today. 
how can you know that you have eternal life? For those who allow themselves to think beyond the grave, most people walk in denial about the grave, right? But for those who, who allow themselves to go down that road, many will say, well, you really can't know for sure. And what John will say in chapter 5 and verse 13, that these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life, that God doesn't want you to be indecisive and just hoping that you got this thing figured out and that you're doing the right things. No, the scripture lays out a clear way of knowing these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. And so John will present metrics, if you will, ways of, again, these metrics don't secure our eternal life, only Christ secures our eternal life, but these metrics are ways of us being able to kind of look in the rearview mirror of our, of our lives and look to see, is my life, is my, um, is, is my profession of faith lining up with my possession of faith? The title of my message this morning is that, a profession, I'm sorry, a possession or a profession of faith, a possession or a profession of faith. What do I mean by that? It's a contrast between those who say they are Christians and those who truly have repented of their sins, have embraced Christ and obeyed and applied the work of Christ to their lives. An interesting study was done years back. Uh, the Pew Research Center states that as recent as the 1990s, about 90% of Americans claim to be Christian. Whereas now, this study reveals, 30 years later, that number has dropped to 63% and continues to drop. Now, I know many of you are stuck at the idea that the 1990s was 30 years ago, right? So let me just kind of repeat those statistics for a moment. It was, whether you like it or not, it was 30 years ago, but, but in the 1990s, over 90% of Americans claimed to be Christian, and here we are 30 years later, and that number has dropped to 63%. What do we make of that? I submit to you that if America was ever truly 90% Christian, Whereas they were following the word of God, obeying the word of God, putting in worship, putting in motion the word of God, then we not only would not see a decline in faith, but we wouldn't have such a broken society in which we live as well, right? America has always had a very high profession of faith, but it is not a reflection of our possession of faith. And what the Apostle John addressed to the churches in Asia Minor surely needs to continue to be addressed in our culture, in our lives today. How do we differentiate between those who say they are in Christ and those who are in Christ? Uh, and thankfully, you don't need to depend upon my opinion to do that. John lays out very clearly in this epistle how we might know that we have eternal life. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to uh, click there or go there uh, and meet me at 1 John 
chapter one and verse five. John writes this. He says, this is the message that we have heard from the beginning from him, I'm sorry, from him and proclaim to you. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Let me just stop there for a moment. What John is about to say has tremendous significance. Think about this. He's saying this is the message that we have heard from him. Him who? Him, Jesus. And so John is setting the stage to build our awareness that what he's about to say is extremely impacting. I asked the first service this morning, how many remember that commercial that when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen? And then I dared ask the question, raise your hand if you don't know who E.F. Hutton is this morning. It's okay. It's okay, it's just you're in a different generation, right? Different 90s generation, God bless your hearts, right? But so, what John is saying here, he's like, listen man, I'm about to drop a bomb on you, I'm about to give you some really clear instruct from Jesus himself. This is the message that we have heard from Jesus and we proclaim to you, and here it is, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This important message will contrast God, light, and the world, darkness. In the, in, in the following verses, John will, will lay out for us how to contrast between light and darkness, between sin and righteousness, between good and evil, between a profession of faith and a possession of faith. And he will use light and darkness to communicate that. You see, not only does God function in the light, but he is the very essence of light. He declares in John's Gospel, chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Jesus said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. John uses this, these phrases oftentimes in his, in his first epistle to, as a draw from much of the words that Jesus used in John's gospel. Listen to what Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter three. He says this, and this is the judgment that light has come into the world. Who is the light? Jesus is the light, right? He's referring to himself. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things, look, hates the light. Who's the light? Jesus is the light. Everyone who does wicked things hates Jesus and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his works should be exposed. Those who are in darkness, who are operating in darkness, do not want to come to the light. Why? They want their darkness to be hidden. But when darkness enters into the light, the darkness is exposed. And people don't want darkness exposed. Why? Because they hate the light. They have embraced their works of evil. But John will say, but whoever does what is true, 
comes to the light. Why? Because truth brings to the surface that all the light brings into the surface all that which is true. Whoever does what is true, that one comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so we'll see John using this, this theme of, of light and darkness throughout his first epistle to help us to understand the contrast between those who say they are Christians and those who truly are. And, G, and he's using, John is using Jesus' teaching as an example. And he's setting the stage for the true follower of Christ to have the assurance of knowing that they have eternal life. Now let me just say this, this message that we're gonna look at this morning has the potential of doing one of two things. It will either beat you up or it will grow you up. A lot of that has to do with our wiring, a lot of that has to do with our experience. Some people come from very uh, abusive and very pharisaical and very judgmental environments. And so as we dig into this text, and I just want to say, I didn't write the text. I'm just delivering the text, right? And when we look at the text, it's very clear. It's very, there, there's no guessing as to what John might have meant when he, when he said what he said. But too many times, because we've had a bad, bad experience from people who didn't understand how to communicate truth and grace, we hear hard things and we just think, oh, you know what? What's the sense? I'm a mess. I'll never be able to figure this thing out. God is mad at me. God is hate me and, it, and, and hates me. And what that ends up creating is a, um, a, a walking in condemnation. And instead of driving us to God, it drives a person far from God. That's what religion does. Jesus didn't come to establish a religion. He came that we might have a relationship with him, right? And so this will either beat you up or, and this is my prayer, it will grow you up. And when I say you, I mean me as well. That will grow us up. That will serve as a reminder that as, as children of light, this is the way we are to live. Because the scripture does lay out clearly how we are to live our lives. And I believe that's why you're here this morning, right? You're not here. If you're here just to be entertained, you're in the wrong building, right? That's, that's, that's not what we're about. We want to we allow the word of God to challenge us, to equip us, so that we might grow more and more into his likeness, right? And some of those things are like, yes, and amen. And some of those are like, oh my, Jesus, forgive me, Right? And that's all right. It's a necessary balance between the two that we need to walk out in our Christian journey. John is contrasting walking in the light and walking in darkness. And this is how we can know we have eternal life. We don't look in the, re the rearview mirror at what we say to determine whether we have eternal life. We look at the rearview mirror of our lives to examine the fruit that flows out of what we have said. What does our lifestyle expose about our standing in God, right? 
And so John will present this contrast. And, and again, if you feel like I'm beating you up this morning, that's, again, that's not my goal here, right? Let's, let's, let's let, let the word of God kind of just find its place in our hearts and realize that these things were written so that we might know that we have eternal life, right? And so John will present a, a contrast between those who say and those who have. Look at verse six. He said, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Is that a possession of faith or a profession of faith? It's a, it's a profession of faith. That's the person who says, right? If we say we have fellowship and yet we continue to walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. That's the terminology that, that John sees Jesus use. Again, we looked at in John chapter three, verse 21, where he talked about that the one who does what is true. That's a profession of faith. But, verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what we see, what we have here is not just a, a profession of faith, but we have a possession of faith. We see the fruit that is evidence in the one who says. If we walk in the light, I love this, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the first thing we do is we see we have fellowship with one another. I always get concerned about Christians who want nothing to do with other Christians. Why? Because our love for Jesus is going to be seen in, as we looked at last week, our love for one another. This group of people who are as equally as imperfect as me. Right? And what Jesus is saying, what, what, uh, what John is saying here is if we walk in the light as he's in the light, that produces a fellowship that we have, not just with God, but with one another. And it doesn't end there, it gets even better. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what walking in the light does. We walk in the light, it exposes that which is dark, and when it's exposed, we present it and we receive forgiveness. And that forgiveness cleanses our hearts and unites us with one another. It's a possession of faith. Look at verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I like that. Listen, we can say we have no sin. You're not fooling God. And I'll let you know a little secret. You're not fooling anybody else around you. Who are we deceiving? We're deceiving ourselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's a profession of faith. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that great news? It doesn't say that we're not going to have any sin. It says if we take the sin and we bring it into the light, we'll confess our sins. And what happens is he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How beautiful. That's the possession of faith that we have. But we see in verse 10, next verse. But if we say we have not sinned, watch the progression. Now we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Obviously, we're not making, we're not, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not making God into a liar, but we're taking that which God clearly states and we're declaring it as a lie. Because if man is not a sinner, then Jesus really didn't need to come. 
What a waste of time all of that would have been if there was any other way that man could be reconciled back to God, but there was no other way, so therefore God sent his son. John makes some really interesting contrasts in this passage of Scripture of saying versus doing. He uses it four times just in this text, this word say. James addresses the futility in his writing of the of verbal faith versus a practicing faith. And John, consistent with the way Scripture is written, we see the weaving of truth all throughout the book. And so we see, we see this contrast of, of light versus darkness, of, of truth versus deception, of confession of sin versus denial of sin, of head knowledge versus heart knowledge, of profession of faith versus possession of faith. You see, every one of these contrasts has to do not just with the topic of sin and darkness, but one's intentional avoidance of sin and darkness because it is in such contrast to the Christ that we say we are following. It's very important. We avoid sin because we recognize it is in contrast to the one that we say we follow. Sin is a significant subject woven throughout 1 John. It's mentioned over a dozen times. It's not laid out there for us to feel guilty. That's the beating up part. It's to help us realize that we are guilty. That's the growing up part. Because when we recognize we are guilty, we recognize that we have a need. And when we recognize we have a need, then we recognize there's a Savior who meets that need in the person of himself. And that's what the gospel points to. But if we say we don't have a need, we say we have no sin, then we are the solution to our biggest problem. And I gotta let you know, <laughs> that, solve, that problem's not gonna be solved in yourself. Let's take a look at the rest of our text and then we're gonna, we're gonna look at um, three ways in which people respond to sin. Three ways in which people respond to sin. Let's take a look at our text in First uh, John chapter two. John says, I love, I love the affectionate heart of, of John uh, in, in this opening. He says, my little, my little children. It's not, he's not demeaning towards them. It's a, it's a term of, of affection and love, of, father, of fatherly love. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love, let's just kind of pause there for a moment. What a powerful statement that John is making here in this text. He says, I write these things that you might not sin. What is he saying here? Listen, in Christ, the power of sin has been broken over your life. You do not need to sin. You can, you can just say no. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So the power of sin has been broken in my life. I don't have to sin. So why do I? Because I've been living a certain way my whole life. 
I have figured out ways to get what I want to see happen, right? And so many times, uh, while it's in my heart to follow the heartbeat of my master, there are times that I step out of what I know to be, I know this isn't anybody else here, but there are times, right, where I will flush out a little bit. I'll worry and I'll try to solve the problem on my own. My trust will drop and my, my control will take over and I step out of what I should be doing and I go back into my own, my old way of operating. And I sin. Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because that's the way I'm wired. It's what, I, it's what I've learned. And this process of sanctification that takes place over the lifetime is to get us to the point where we say no to sin. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And life that I live by faith, I live in the Son, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And what John is saying here is listen, I'm writing these things that you might not sin, but if you do sin, it's not over. Oh, thank God for that. I mean, what a wonderful reminder of the mercy of God. I write these things that you might not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Wow. He is the, the propitiation for our sins. We'll look at that in a couple moments. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he says, look, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Ready? By this, we know, and it, it, this is past tense, by the way. This is how we'll know we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I'm looking at the rearview mirror of my life, and if I don't see, not perfection, right? But if I don't see a direction that is seeking to honor God and please God and confess my sins when I drop the ball, I've got to ask my question. Do I ask that question? Do I really know him? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar. Hard words. And the truth is not in him. And whoever keeps his word in him, the tr truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, look, uh, ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. Oh, is that all? Is that all I got to do? That's great. Oof, I, thought, I thought there was like some insurmountable goal that I needed to, you know, I just need to walk like Jesus walked, right? Aren't you so glad that, that that chapter opened up with, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, what I love about this is, listen, God does not lower his standard. He does not lower his standard. He meets the standard in the person of his son as he's walking us through this journey of sanctification. And so John will present three ways that people respond to sin. I'm gonna give them to you up front so you can, if you're taking notes, it'll be easier. Three ways in which people respond to sin. They cover their sins, they confess their sins, and they conquer their sins. They cover their sins, they confess their sins, and they conquer their sins. Let's take a look at this first point. How do we respond to sin? We cover our sins. 
Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We walk in darkness. We cover our sins. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we, again, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not, and the, and, and the word is not, his word is not in us. Chapter 2 and verse 4, he who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is often the, the default response for people. They want to cover their sins. They want to ignore. They want to deny their sins. They don't want to look at that. They want to live in denial. Man does not want to see himself as a sinner in need of a savior. Because here's the thing. The moment we recognize we're a sinner, then we recognize that we are accountable to God. And man does not want to be held accountable to God because sin is pride, right? John is addressing the one who would have the audacity to say that they are without sin. They want to see themselves as, as good people. And what, what they mean by that is, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Right? A lot of people want to have the, the scales applied to their lives. And say, you know, hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as fill-in-the-blank. And you know what? If you measure your life by my life, you might look really, really good. You might come across looking wonderful. But here's the problem. The standard is not anybody else. I'm not the standard. The person next to you is not the standard. What's the standard by which God will measure our lives? It is Jesus Christ. It is perfection. Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so when I recognize, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to compare to Jesus, then I am in need. And while I might be a good person, here's the problem, I'm just not good enough. And see, I don't say that to undermine anybody here this morning. You might be a really good person, a, a heart, heart, you know, hearty person, a, a person full of compassion and love and mercy and, and all those. You might be a really good person. The problem is you and I, we're not good enough in, our, in and of ourselves. Because as I, as I said before, if being good enough was good enough, Jesus would have never had to come. Isaiah says all of our good works are as filthy rags compared to a holy God. Christ became our substitute so that our need was met in the person of Jesus. And that's why it was so important for John's readers and for us to understand who this Jesus is. This idea of covering our own sins, not only does it fall far short, but it's not new at all. We see it taking place all the way back to the beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, we learned that as they, as they sinned against God, the first way that sin manifested itself to Adam and Eve was through the feeling of shame. 
How do I know that? Because what they did was they recognized that they were naked and they covered themselves to hide their nakedness. We see that in Genesis chapter three and verse seven. They, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So you say, well, yeah, but that doesn't say, how do you know that they were ashamed? Well, chapter two and verse 25, before the fall, before sin entered into the world, it says the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And so now the only difference between, the, the, now, now that sin has come into the world, we recognize they cover their nakedness because they were ashamed and they declare to God when he was looking for them, where were you? We were naked and we were shamed and so we hid ourselves from you. And so what we see in Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is they try to cover their own sin. And what I find very interesting is now when God, after he pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve and on the serpent, the first thing he does is he slaughters an animal. It's the first time we see blood and sacrifice in the garden and he takes the animal and he covers Adam and Eve. What's the message? Adam and Eve, you cannot cover your own sin. Only I can cover the sin. And we see right in the beginning of Genesis a picture to the cross of Christ who alone is the only one able who would come as our sacrifice and cover our own sins. Man cannot cover his own sins. Only Christ can cover. The psalmist says this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered, Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's a great place to be. To be. Look at verse five. He says, he declares, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. Why? Because he couldn't do it. And so instead, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. By the way, this is Old Testament. And then notice what he says in verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Offer prayer to you, which is our second point here. We, we move from recognizing a proper covering of our sin in Christ, and then secondly, we confess our sins, right? That's what he says there. Therefore, let anyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. We confess our sins. Look at verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here's what I learned. This might be your reality, maybe it's not, but here's what I learned. When we try to cover our sins, we find ourselves continuing in our sins. And that's not the plan of God. But when we confess our sins, he cleanses us from our sins. You see, John is not writing these things to make us feel guilty, as I said before. He's writing these things to make us aware that we are guilty. But God has provided a way for us in Christ. You say, did you just say I'm guilty? How offensive. I didn't say it. That's what the word says. Remember, John is writing to people who had a distorted views regarding who Jesus was. Many of them didn't see themselves as sinners, so therefore, why in the world, if I'm not a sinner, would I need a savior? But notice the conditional promises here. If we walk in the light, 
He says, then we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus will cleanse our hearts, from our, cleanse us from our sins. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to live, can I just say, we need to live, here's the key, can I just say one of the quick, quick tracks to growth? Be a confessing Christian. Don't, don't, let, don't let that stuff harbor, don't let that stuff sit. If you, if, if, you, if, you, if you fall, if you sin, confess it to God. Don't let the account accumulate. Go right to him. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Your father loves you, and he doesn't want you to walk in, 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 in the guilt and the shame and the consequences of your sin. Jesus came so that we can be cleansed of that and walk in his planned purpose for our lives. Covering, covering our sins leads to continuing in our sins if we try and do it ourselves. Confessing our sins leads to the cleansing of our sins, which sets up the conquering of our sins. The conquering of our sins. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to also walk just as he walked. This is a tough bag of goods that, he, uh, that, that is being presented to us here. What do we what do, we do with this? How do, we, how do we put this in motion in our lives? Again, we looked at the fact that, man, we don't have to sin, right? I write these things that you might not sin, but if you do sin, and a more realistic reading of that is when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But I just want to encourage you and remind you that the power of sin has been broken over your life. John says that he himself is the, the propitiation for our sins. What is that? That he is the, it speaks of his sacrifice, that, that he is the sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. He absorbed Christ did on the cross. He bared, he bore all of God's wrath that was just directed towards us upon himself. Can I just tell you that if you're in Christ, there is no wrath left for you. All of God's wrath was poured on Christ on your behalf. All that's left for you is God's favor. That's Christ, our propitiation. He absorbed the full wrath, and in so doing, he turns God's wrath towards us into God's favor. So how do, you, how do you respond to sin in our own lives? Well, we need to cover it or, more importantly, recognize it was covered in Christ. We need to recognize it as sin. And when we do that, then we need to confess it. God, you are holy. And I have sinned, as David said so beautifully in Psalm 50, against you and you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Right? And it's that humble posture that we have 
violated God's law. But Christ paid the price so that we can confess that sin and be cleansed and then walk in victory in that area. Not go back to it. Let it go. Listen, too many times in our grace economy, in the Protestant movement, we're so quick to just say, well, you know what, I just messed up and you know, God will forgive me. Can I just tell you how much an offense to the cross that is? That's not the way God wants us to view sin. Our love for God ought to be such that when we, when we fall short of what God wants for us, our love for God draws, ought to draw us to God in repentance. Again, looking at verse four, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which Jesus walked. How do we, how do, what's a good metric for us to, to not look, not beat ourselves up, but how do we grow as believers? How do we assess our lives? How do we examine ourselves? Number one, we consider, am I keeping his commandments? Am I following the word of God? Is my life consistent with a, a life that, that, that has embraced Jesus? Am I walking the way Christ wants me to walk? Am I, secondly, am I keeping his word? Am I allowing the word of God to override how I feel about a situation or how I grew up about a situation? Am I putting God's word as more important and more supreme than popularity or acceptance or what is politically correct in our day and age? We keep his word. And then lastly, we, we just walk as Jesus walked, that's all. We walk as Jesus walked. When the scripture talks about our walk, it's a metaphor for how we live our lives. Do our, do our values, do our priorities, does our, does our time and our, our talent and our, and our treasure reflect the life of the one in whom we're following? Do I remind people of Jesus? John gives us three short questions to assess that. No, to assess ourselves. To get alone with God. A couple moments, you're gonna be leaving here and, 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 and some of the hard things that John has to say, you won't have to listen to it anymore and you can just, you know, write it off. Or you can get alone with God at some point and say, God, I, I want my life to reflect what you want it to reflect not out of any other reason, but out of love for you. Am I keeping your word? Am I keeping your commandments? Am I walking as Jesus walked by this? We know, we've come to know him. Is my profession of faith, which is important by the way, we need to have a profession of faith, right? It's not either or, you need it to both end. Does my profession of faith run parallel with my possession? of faith. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it comforts the disturbed and it disturbs the comfortable. And I pray that, that Lord, as we, we look in the mirror, 
We don't consider anybody else and where they're at. We look inwardly and we examine our own hearts. We thank you for the awesome invitation that you give to us to walk as Jesus walked, to be the people of God, to walk in freedom and wholeness and forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you came and you are our covering for sin. Thank you that you absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf and now I could walk in the favor of God because of what you've done. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked Christ to be Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sins. Maybe you just never heard it like that before. And, but you heard this this morning and you thought, you know, I'm not looking to join a church or, or do anything. I'm just, but I want to get right with God. How do I do that? Well, you confess your sins. You recognize you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And you recognize that Christ and Christ alone is the only means for your salvation. And then you follow hard after Jesus. That's you this morning. You can do that in the quietness of your own heart. Afterwards, I know one of our elders will come up and he'll provide an opportunity for you to pray and be encouraged. And we'd be happy to pray with you as well. But Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we, may we walk in the light as you're in the light and bring glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.